establishing connection to Science Night. Please stand by. Welcome back to another episode of the Science Night Podcast. We took a little break to get through the holidays and get back to a schedule where we can start recording, but we are back. I am James. With me tonight is Steffi. Hey. And, of course, Jason. Hello. Tonight, we're starting off with fish cars and a check-in with our favorite autonomous submarine. And later, we'll bring you our conversation with Adam Taylor, an anatomist and science communicator from the northwest of England, as he likes to be described. But first, the news. So let's start off with a quick headline. Maybe it was our previous podcast episode. Maybe it was some help with the big guy in red from the North Pole. But the James Webb Space Telescope has taken off. It launched on Christmas Day of 2021 and has now fully deployed. So let's stay tuned for the first images, which are expected sometime in June-ish. Transportation is always toward the top of the science news pile. And on this very podcast, we've talked about all kinds of stuff related to cars and planes and their potential future. And we've also made no secret of the fact that we like science of a little bit of a weirder variety. This story is the perfect marriage of both. It's like chocolate and peanut butter. Researchers at Ben-Gurion University of the Negev in Israel wanted to test how well a fish could navigate the world in a sort of car, I guess? And what resulted was the Fish Operated Vehicle, or FOV, which uses a combination of a fish tank on a wheeled motorized platform, a camera, and LIDAR to interpret the fish's movement in the water and use it to move the little car around. So we now have a pescatarian version of Stuart Little. So what does the team think about this story? I love it. Yeah, I have to tell you the first thing I thought of immediately was Klaus Heisler from American Dad. Right? (laughs) You know the little the little like hated goldfish family so, pet because I thought like if anyone was going to use that car that's who's going to use that car. I just love the video of watching that fish navigate down a street. Like it is in a street driving its tank around. It's pretty amazing. You know, I wish that this had been invented a long time ago. I'll tell a story about when I was a kid. I had several goldfish when I was a kid. Um they were all named Jaws. Jaws 1, Jaws 2, Jaws 3. <laughs> the problem is this. Jaws 2 only came about because I took Jaws 1 for a walk. Oh, no. Before I realized that, like, Jaws 1 needed the water to breathe. It was kind of sad. I mean, all I wanted to do was take my pet for a walk. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. if my parents had just got me the dog I wanted instead of a goldfish, it would have been no problem. We, we had a crawfish. That we got from the Lake Michigan and we put in our house and I didn't realize that they scoot, scoot, scoot and fly out of their tanks. So I I think our crawfish didn't live long enough to get a name, but he probably would have appreciated this feature. Drive around, explore the world. So is the next step self-driving cars for fish? (laughs) (laughs) I, I'm thinking of like competitive, like fish NASCAR is the next step. 
in the pandemic, we've experienced all kinds of new sports. We've had, you know, marble racing and that guy that puts stuff on treadmills and see which falls off last. I think competitive fish racing is the next step. You know, for our European persuasion, we can have some that are a little more fine-tuned and faster. So we can have like Fish Formula One. Mm-hmm. Um, we can have Fish NASCAR, which is just turning left. Um <laughs> I will say this, though, of all the places where this should happen, it should be here in Indianapolis, the racing capital of the world. There you go. Oh, man. Pitch it. I mean, this follows the research, too, right? So they, they proved they trained the fish. They could understand the mechanics of how to drive in this tank. And then the next step the researchers did was they took it, they changed the environment. And they still had the targets out there, and the fish were able to adapt. So, I mean, it's there. We just need a venue. What you're saying is if these fish like evolve thumbs we're totally screwed yeah they're smart and now let's check in with our favorite unmanned submersible vehicle Bodie mcboakface what seems like a lifetime ago back in 2016 the united kingdom's national environment research council asked the internet to hashtag name our ship and the internet did its thing and chose Bodie McBoatface by a huge margin. And it was, you know, pushed along a little bit by HBO's John Oliver. But what happened next was, of course, the NERC just immediately said, no, we're not going to do this. This is science and we have to be serious about it. And they named the ship the RRS Sir David Attenborough. However, as a nod to the people that engaged with the poll, an unmanned submersible was named Bodie McBoatface, which brings us to the present story. What was once an internet joke is now taking on a very, very serious and maybe bleak mission, which is monitoring the melting of the Thwaites Glacier in western Antarctica. So what do we think about an internet meme now monitoring a potential 10-foot rise to sea level with the melting of this very large Florida-sized glacier in Antarctica. So I love it. Not the, you know, doomsday glacier part, melting. I love how the public gets involved in naming a ship. And this kind of comes up and brings recognition and people, like, that's how you reach out to the general public. Make them part of science. So I love that. Also, my dog... Danger boat, we call him Bodhi. So I'm just trying to this story. Uh, I also love the research team that they set up for this mission. So there's Bodhi, there's other crews of robots, there's, uh, you know, 32 international scientists. And then there's also a team of Weddell and elephant seals that are equipped with sensors. And they're all on this mission to characterize the glacier, the interaction of uh, the ice front of the glacier with the ocean and the ocean characteristics all in the effort to understand melting of glaciers and i just love that team i love it like the pixar movie is gotta be in development at this time right we have friendly seals helping the autonomous vehicle it's like it's like a combination of bambi and wally uh all slowly marking the end of the planet i mean it's quite literally the octonauts are being assembled, which I think is fantastic. But I would agree with what Steffi said, especially here, and that is that involving the public in science allows them to become citizen scientists. And now they're going to be more interested in the outcomes of this research than they perhaps would have been before. I'm a little 
disappointed that I didn't ask our guest uh, during the interview, Adam Taylor, if maybe the internet vote on Bodie McBoatface was a harbinger of Brexit. Oh. Too dark. Darkest timeline. And we got we to gotta end on a brighter note than that. I know. Uh, let's talk about Danger Boat some more. <laughs> danger Boat. You know, if he were an internet meme, I think he would be helping out science, too. I mean, maybe that can be his superhero alter ego is uh, Danger Boat, a.k.a. Bodie McBoatface. And yeah. He goes around and, and fights climate change one, uh, yeah. I don't know. One bite at a time because he loves to bite me. I mean, that's like his yeah. thing. We are just, we got to, so after, <laughs> after we, we finish recording, we got to print out this podcast and mail it to ourselves because we got so much IP wrapped up into just this news portion of this show. <laughs> out of curiosity, James, did you happen to capture on the microphone, um, you spitting out your coffee when I said Octonauts? I hope so. I hope so too. <laughs> I'm leaving it in. I think it's important, you know, that Bodie McBoatface is going to be measuring the 3D geometry of the underside of the glacier so that it can understand exactly where uh, melting is happening and how. And it's going to be looking at, you know, sort of micro environments within the, the ocean underneath it as well to sort of figure out what's causing different parts of the glacier to melt differently. Once we have that information, we're going to have to do something with that information. But my fear is that it's already kind of too late to do anything with that information. All that we can do is hope that that information helps us stave off, you know, complete melting of this glacier long enough that we don't have a doomsday scenario. Well, if you can understand heat transport, I think that's what they're, right, that's what they're looking at, how the ocean's transporting heat to different parts of the glaciers, what impacts. And if you can see if maybe there's a way to interrupt that transport to change to actually hopefully slow it down. I don't, I don't know if you can stop it at this point, but just any kind of slowing down the impact would be great. I agree. My concern is really more about the fact that, you know, the worst projections say that within three to five years, this could collapse, right? Yeah. And so just analyzing those data could take six months. Yeah. And then trying to come up with a solution to stop that or to, you know, divert heat from being transferred to different parts of that glacier I guess I'm a pessimist. I don't see that happening. I mean, coming up with a solution and then getting funding for it. Right. right? Just the funding alone, right? That's yeah. really important. That could take two years because you don't submit a grant and get it funded on the first no. round almost ever. Yeah. Actually, one of our guests uh, that I interviewed for you know several weeks down the road here said something about how he got his very first NIH grant and he thought he should just hang him up after that because it's never going to happen again finish with a perfect record he didn't do that but i mean that's probably for the best right yeah he did a lot of good science after that so i'm glad he didn't hang him up <laughs> this is uh this is i thought we were gonna try and kind of land on a fluffier brighter note and we've gotten even worse maybe we uh, should have flipped the fish with the glacier maybe yeah, we that's not as fun that's not as fun <laughs> i know you know what I think we're losing sight of in all of this doom and gloom is that there is an unmanned submersible that is named Bodie McBoatface, and that is the end of this segment. With SEALs, with a SEAL team, like a legit real-life SEAL a, team. A real SEAL team. A real SEAL team. Oh, my goodness. Octonauts at ease until the next adventure. <laughs> Speaking of engaging the United Kingdom and the people therein with science, 
I think now is the time to pitch to Jason's conversation with anatomist and science communicator Adam Taylor, which will come to your ears right after this quick break. Nature, we're part of it. Animals, we're one of them. What can we learn from other species? How can our lives be better by reconnecting with nature? And why does it matter at all? That's what Wild Connection, the podcast, is all about. Every week, we bring you authors, filmmakers, scientists, and conservationists whose work is revealing why being connected to nature and wildlife matters. You can find us where you get your podcasts, including iTunes, Google Play, and Spotify. We're hosted by Podbean, so you can find us there too. And you can keep up with us on Twitter at WildConnectPod. Our guest today on the Science Night podcast is Professor Adam Taylor uh, from the Lancaster Medical School. He's professor of anatomy and he's a good friend of mine. Adam, welcome to the podcast. It's so nice to talk to you. Hey, Jason, it's great to be here. Thanks for having me on and, and good to, to see and speak to you again in the chaos that reigns supreme at the moment. Yeah, it does seem like it's been quite a while. There was a run we had there where we were on Zoom meetings quite a bit at the early part of the pandemic, being you know colleagues from across the ocean, which was not that unusual, actually. Everyone has gone back into their bunkers, it seems, feel disconnected. Exactly. Yeah. I think everybody's just trying to stay alive, aren't they? That's the, the challenge at the moment. And I think with term restarting every, for everybody in, you know, this week and next week, it's the kind of hybrid uh, existence that we've had as, as educators. I think everybody's really focused on getting the job done and, and I think, you know, has, has lost the connections to the, their colleagues overseas and, and, and just down the road. So hopefully 2022 will be a better year for those kind of things. I hope so. You know, it should come as no surprise to our listeners that we've invited you onto this podcast, being that James and I are both anatomists, have a very strong interest in public outreach, and you are known internationally for having a pretty strong footprint in that area as well. You got interested in anatomy education for the public. I want to know about how you got interested in that. But before we get there, I kind of want to talk about sort of what you found. From my understanding, what you found is that the general public really has no idea about their body, even though everybody has one. And it's quite shocking how little we do know. Could you elaborate on that? Yeah, so I think, you know, having listened to Science Night podcasts, I've not got through the whole back catalogue yet, but I think yourself and me and, and James, you know, we're privileged as anatomists because I think as science educators and, and all of us that work in sciences as educators and, and you know, we share that belief that it's, it doesn't end in the classroom, we all want to instill knowledge in people. But I think us as anatomists are really fortunate because we teach a science that actually impacts everybody. You know, if you're into astrophysics, loads of people are into astro astrophysics, but not everybody will experience it in their life. Whereas you and I know anatomy is one of those subjects that you don't care about until something goes wrong or something falls off. And that is really a privilege for us as scientists. So I kind of got into trying to understand, learn what the public know about anatomy, almost kind of stumbled into it, really. I've always done outreach for my whole academic career to date, and that's going into primary schools and kindergarten and, and mm -hmm. you know, really young ages from kids four or five all the way through to high school kids. And something became apparent we're doing um, some outreach work in the city centre and people were coming in and, you know, we just had some basic plastic models out for people to have a look at. And they were coming in and we just given the opportunity to kind of get hands on, look at the plastic models of, say, the liver or the 
pancreas and they start asking questions and then mm -hmm. their question, you know, basic level questions and they begin to say, oh, well, you know, they disclose information about their kind of personal medical history. You know, oh, I've had kidney stones. I didn't realize right, that's right. where the kidneys were and how. And so it really got me thinking about, well, if this is the level of knowledge that people who have been alive for 40, 50, 60 years haven't got, we should be able to do something about this. You know, there is almost a privilege, really, of, of having a basic understanding of the body and where basic things are because it can be the difference between seeking help at an appropriate time and and you know surviving a major traumatic experience with cancer or other other ailments and and not you know seeking appropriate health if people can't identify the organs themselves never mind the location of them that should be a kind of basic level of, of understanding that and us as scientists should be able to help the, the general public get and understand so that was kind yeah, of yeah. a real driver from doing science outreach it became apparent that we as anatomists know all this stuff and doctors and, and medical professionals assume their patients know all of this stuff and actually it became apparent very quickly that there's a big knowledge gap and we, we need to do something right so let's talk about that knowledge gap. What did you find, right? I mean, you know, I, I would imagine um, even before having read your paper on this, that most people would know where their brain was. And it turns out that you found that that people do know where their brain is located. But when it comes to other organs, ones that we we talk about all the time, people didn't don't know where that is, right? Where yep. those things are. Can you tell us a little bit about that? The kind of preliminary study that we published, uh, gosh, it's like four years ago now, I think. We asked some, anatomically speaking, relatively straightforward organs and structures that we know cause vast number of uh, presentations to emergency departments and various specialty clinics, but also things that we know that, it, you know, if you do anything, you know, if you do yoga or you go to the gym, you're going to know where the biceps muscle and the triceps muscles are. So we gave them a list of 20 structures that, you know, most people, if you stop them in the street, would be able to kind of say, oh yeah, I've heard of that. And we asked them to place a random letter to a structure onto the body and we scored it. And so, you know, as you alluded to, 100% of the people that we asked were correctly able to identify the location of the brain, which is great. That's, you know, that's a good start. It is a very good start. Very good start. It tells us that the, the one they've got functions, right? There you go. It was a slippery slope downhill from there, really. So about 90% of people were able to identify the cornea, where the cornea is located in the mm. eye. Biceps and triceps fared pretty well. Lungs fared pretty well. We're now getting down into kind of the 60% success rate for things like the cruciate ligament, the bladders, uh, you know, muscles such as quadriceps and hamstrings. And then one actually that really surprised us when we were reviewing the data was the heart. Between 50 and 60% of people were able to correctly locate the heart. And when you think about the causes of death, particularly in the Western world, a third of people die from cancer, a third mm -hmm. of people die from cardiovascular related diseases, and the other third is everything else from, you know, old age to being, you know, knocked down in, in, a, in a road traffic accident. Right. So if we've got only two out of three people are able to correctly identify where the heart's located, and a third of people are killed from heart-related, cardiovascular-related diseases, are we missing an opportunity to help people seek treatment, seek help, seek intervention for heart-related issues? That was quite a big surprise for us. And then uh, things like the appendix and the kidneys and the liver were down in the 40% region. And then basically when you get into the kind of general abdominal area, things like mm -hmm. the pancreas, the spleen, the adrenal glands, the gallbladder, it was basically potluck. You know, we're down in the low 20s, uh, high teens percentages for those, for those structures. So 
right. it started off really well and it went downhill and, and told us there's a big educational void that we should be looking to fill. This was a preliminary study that you're referencing now. And it was a sizable preliminary study. It wasn't a small study by any stretch, right? It wasn't, we're not talking like 10 participants. We ended up with 63 participants in okay. this study. And this is, let's say, Lancaster centric because that's where we did it. We did it with right. the public of Lancaster. And um, so, you know, for a preliminary study, it's it's a reasonable amount of data. Absolutely. Showed us the scale of the problem, let's say, of which there is one. Right. And then I know that you then collaborated with an online science communication aggregator of some sort to sort of take this worldwide. Have you been able to look through those data much? We've not finished with the data yet because, you know, the pandemic's got in the way. And Yeah. Let's take a real quick detour and explain why, why science across the board slowed down, at least in the early parts of the pandemic. But for those of us who have a sizable teaching obligation as well, it has been, I think, even more detrimental to the research that we do. I mean, that's because we're constantly shifting our teaching modalities. And so that is to account for ground conditions with COVID. And so, you know, when we don't know what we're doing one week to the next or one semester to the next, we have to sort of plan for everything. And the first time you plan something, it, it goes moderately well, the second time a little bit better. It's not till you don't have done something like about the third time in a classroom that you can confidently say, this was a good idea or this is a bad idea. And so we're still trying to figure out how to adapt the courses best to meet the needs of students during this pandemic. And that has really just put a damper on all the research productivity for folks who have especially high teaching loads. So all of that is to say, you shouldn't be disappointed in yourself. The fact that you're out here talking about it now, even if it's not published, you're getting it out to the public. And this is the most important part of it all, right? What has your larger expanded study shown? I'll give you a little bit of information about it just to kind of set the context, because I think the scale of change is sizable. So as mm -hmm. we said in the, the preliminary study, which in the Anatomical Sciences Education Journal through the American Association for Anatomy. Thank, thank you very much. And you're welcome very much, AAA. Exactly. It was a 60, 63 participant involved in the study. And we quite rightly received the reviewer comments and they said this is very a uk centric and b lancaster centric mm -hmm. think about going elsewhere so we were lucky enough to team up with uh, an online citizen science platform called the zooniverse which i'm sure lots of people who are listening to science night and beyond know it very well mm -hmm. we worked really hard with with colleagues at the zooniverse they were great because this project was a little bit out of their usual the material that they usually host because they rely on amateurs and people with a, a specific interest to to help support their their scientific projects. You're looking at people who've got specific knowledge to support astronomy projects or zoology projects, whereas we were actually assessing the knowledge level of the citizen scientists that go to Zooniverse. So this was kind of a, a pioneering project for them on their front as well. And we were really lucky. So as I say, in the original kind of face-to-face -face study, we got 63 participants. In this one, we ended up with just over 81,000 participants from over 200 different countries and territories, 25,000 respondents from the US, 25,000 respondents from the UK. We're even lucky enough to get some territories that we were surprised, you know, one individual responding from the Vatican City who knows you know wow it could have been it could have been the pope who knows right and, and then i'm going to go one further and say we even had a respondent from north korea so you, you know you never you never know can we publish this can we uh <laughs> can we talk about this or or are we not allowed to talk about that we can go for it yeah um, <laughs> we got lots of 
territories and, and places in the yeah. world that we would never have been able to reach otherwise. Huge four-figure respondents from places like uh, Germany, Australia, Canada, and then you know into South America, countries in Africa. So we were really lucky in getting this project out there. And yeah. we originally anticipated getting 20,000 responses over a period of about three to four months. We hit that in the first 36 hours. That is crazy. It was unreal. And we had to go back to the ethics committee and say, can we go up to 100,000? You know, this is where we think we're going to end up. And they said, as long as you can collect the data and analyze it, yeah, absolutely. So, you know, to get 81,000 respondents was immense across such a, a geographical spread. With this huge geographic distribution now, do the preliminary results kind of hold up? Yes, they do. Yeah. So talking about the heart, for example, which was the kind of one surprise to us in the preliminary study, we see very similar data in in the bigger population study, uh, very close matches to it. Again, brain was the best scoring identified structure. Once we get into the abdominal organs and structures, it goes to it goes chaotic again, and they're down in the low twenties, high teen percentages. The Lancaster study, as, as the primary study, has has mapped quite nicely against the more global outlook. One of the things that we want to do with this data, and I think this kind of links back to what I was saying about informing people's health choices, almost, is look at how well. A country performed in identifying organs and structures versus the top causes of death and disease in that country. So, you know, in the UK, in the US, where cardiovascular diseases and cancers are the biggest killers compared to countries where perhaps, you know, amenities are not similar to the Western, you know, the developed world where fresh running water is is hard to source and there therefore are things like intestinal parasites and, you know, diseases of, of the gastrointestinal system due to lack of access to, to running water, for example, are they the where they're the highest causes of, of death and morbidity. How do those countries score in identifying mm-hmm. the, the structures that are associated with the major causes of death and disease, uh, com- you know, compared to other countries? So that's certainly, you know, something that we look at because with, I dare, I dare say these words, but public health messaging uh, oh. going, going around at the moment, you know, yeah, we, we need all the help we can get, right? That's true. I mean, thankfully, lungs are pretty well located by the general public into the chest, right? Yes. We've got that going for us. But you know, what's interesting because we talk about COVID being primarily a respiratory infection, but what we're learning is that anywhere where the receptors that they're binding to can be found are targets for COVID. And that's a lot more than just a respiratory illness, right? There's cardiovascular implications. There are musculoskeletal implications. It's, you know, very interesting that the messaging hasn't really caught up to that, which I think would be a really important sort of avenue to take. Look, yes, maybe the Omicron variant is less severe in the respiratory system, but it doesn't mean it's not affecting all of these other tissues just as severely. And so those data just aren't out there yet. I'm positive they're being collected because I've been quite impressed with the breadth of science around COVID that's been happening. So much so that we have changing understandings pretty regularly. And I think that's also throwing the public for a loop because they're not used to seeing science done in real time. They're used to seeing what they believe is settled science, even though we've talked on this podcast many times before, there's really not, nothing called settled science, right? No science is ever settled because science is a process for understanding. And so questions are continually asked of the same phenomena to see if we can 
find a hole in our understanding and probe it and understand it better, map it better. The point I was trying to make is that I'm surprised we haven't seen more public health messaging directed at these other tissues. And instead, it's been primarily around respiratory tissues. So I have a question that just popped out, right? And I'm wondering if this might have something to do with why there is a tendency for abdominal organs in particular to be misplaced or, or not understood where they are. And it's this idea of referred pain. For the uh, listeners who aren't familiar with this idea, referred pain is this concept in medicine where nerves that are relaying information about pain, sense, you know, pressure from our internal organs are crossing over in similar places where our skin is sending relaying information through different nerves. And so sometimes pain in an organ is felt instead as pain on a skin, you know, in a skin patch, because the central nervous system kind of gets the signal confused a little bit. The classic example of that is a heart attack, where often the relayed signal feels like you've got a really sharp pain inside of your left arm. And that's because the nerves that are supplying the skin right there are crossing over at the same spinal cord levels that the nerves that are relaying pressure and pain information from the heart are crossing. And so that's where you feel that. So do you think it's possible that some of the misplacement of abdominal organs, like the appendix, for example, is related to the fact that people feel pain in one place, but that's not necessarily where that organ is situated? I'm going to answer your question, Jason, and I'm going to tell you how we're going to answer the question. Awesome. Um, we don't know is the answer. One of the things we asked people um, in both studies is whether they work in healthcare. Mm. and what the highest degree qualification is. So that's certainly one of the things that we can drill down into. So we don't know is the honest answer, but it, it wouldn't surprise me if some people have kind of taken a punt thinking, oh, well, I've had gallstones and this is where the pain was. So I'll guess there kind of thing. But one of the one of the great things about the way we ran the project online is that the way the data was uh, was collected means that we can actually pinpoint how close they were to being correct on locating the organ within the parameters that we we drew the the kind of gold standard responses on and we can then work out exactly where that x or the letter would have been placed to identify so we would certainly be able to drill down into the data and go mm -hmm. okay well the, this group of people got it wrong but actually as you say they they kind of got it right because they've ended up going where the clinical presentation, the clinical symptoms uh, right, that they right. would present with. Um, so that's, I mean, I can't answer your question for definite, but you've definitely given me another angle to to kind of analyze the data and probably another paper. So maybe Sweet. we should chat outside of this meeting. Uh, <laughs> I would love to. I think that would be really interesting to look at. But, you know, this is your work, man. So anything I can contribute to it, I would be honored. Uh, well, let's, yeah, let's pick that up at a later uh, date. Excellent. Fantastic. So one of the things that we ask all of our guests on here is um, sort of what brought them into science, because those stories are really interesting. For me, it was just a general curiosity and the fact that I was fortunate and privileged to live in a household where my father was a scientist. From an early age, like I was looking through microscopes in the basement. I always knew I wanted to do something science adjacent, and it just became very clear to me that I had no way to resist that. My curiosity got the better of me. So how did you get involved in science, and what drew you to the research that you did for your doctoral degree? 
it's a it's a strange one for me really you know i came from a single parent family uh, and so i you know i grew up actually spending most of my time working i wasn't you know fortunate enough to be able to explore science at really really you know i had a paper round and, and everything but what really got me into science was um when i went to high school so science didn't make me click kind of thing but in my first year of high school in our first set of exams i actually scored 99 on my biology exam um wow. which was like you know for me was amazing you know i was always a kind of 65 70 percent uh score so this was kind of out, out of this world and that really kind of piqued my interest in okay i didn't really work that hard for this exam um so but maybe i've got a, you know some natural talent for it mm-hmm. and um the school i went to was very focused on sport and it was very driven so i ended up playing a, a, a couple of games that you and, and some of your fellow countrymen and women are not familiar with so cricket is one game that we ended up playing but the one that i really got into was rugby which is kind sure. of like american football but without all the metal and plastic all over you you know it's it's hard hitting just as hard hitting as that and surprisingly a little bit less of the uh you know traumatic brain injuries as well shock shockingly it's weird just a little bit yeah <laughs> um so i i got into playing a lot of rugby i played soccer and see on the rugby field seeing uh you know colleagues um with broken bones sticking out of the skin and and you know traumatic injuries that you know were, were kind of blunt force uh induced and seeing you know how the body adapted and responded and repaired really piqued mm. my interest. And, and so, you know, when the time came to go to university, I decided that I was going to do something that I was really interested in. And, and I ended up enrolling in an undergrad human anatomy uh, course. You know, it was a dissection-based course. We did full body head-to-toe dissection. Um, and we spent a lot of time in the dissection labs. And then for my final year, my third year, you have to do an honours project. And so I decided to do a lab-based research project. The buzz thing at the time, which was a STEM cell project, and I didn't get mm-hmm. I, it went to somebody else. So I ended up doing a project on a disease that nobody has ever really heard of called alcaptinuria, which is a tyrosine metabolic defect. What does that mean? Sorry. You and everybody else, when we eat, we break down our food and tyrosine is one of the molecules. It's an amino acid that we need to function. So it's used as a a signaling molecule in the brain, for example, and it's used elsewhere in the body. And normally we break it down, we use the bits we need and we pee out the rest um, from the body. This disease, people can't metabolize protein properly and the tyrosine can't be broken down and excreted uh, urinated away from the body properly and they end up with uh, one of the intermediary one of the the molecules that's kind of part way down the breakdown pathway being excreted from their body and when it's excreted it turns black these patients their urine goes black that's horrifying it's horrifying uh, it doesn't happen instantly but it, if you leave it to leave the urine for a short period of time it darkens but if they've you know cleaned the toilet with bleach if there's an alkaline substance in there it goes as black as the night sky very quickly and so i ended up in a lab doing a project on this disease um over time they excrete about eight grams of this molecule a day in their urine which is eight teaspoons of sugars worth of this stuff every day and over time you know the kidneys become less efficient at clearing it from the body and it goes into lots of tissues in the body that have a really high water content so your cartilages the shock absorbers around your bones they turn black and so these patients have black hips the insides of their hips are black the insides of their knees are black and so what we wanted to do was try and find a way to 
understand the disease process. So it takes 40 to 50 years for this blackness to appear in the joints of these patients. We developed a, a model in our laboratory where we could reproduce this pigment in about seven days. Wow. And so that was my honors year project. And they had some funding to stay on and do a doctorate. And so I, I stayed on and did another three years and did my PhD further uh, working on this in vitro model. I characterized how the destructive process in, in the human joints happens by collecting surgical waste samples, but also characterized a mouse model that existed, but they were still not sure exactly. Did it have the human symptoms? Did it not? Because mice, they break down things differently than mm-hmm, humans sure. do. And they have different vitamins that we have to get from our diet, uh, you know, and those, those kind of things. Right. So actually that's an important point because, you know, oftentimes drug trials fail um, when you try to move from an animal model to, you know, clinical trials. And it's because the animals that are being used to develop these models, which is the ethical way to do this, like developing this on a human is not ethical. I know that some listeners may actually find ethics to be an issue with animal models too. I understand that. I just want to reiterate, because we talked about this on the podcast before, it is a magnitude of order more difficult to get an animal-based research project approved um, ethically by the university or the institution than it is to get a human study approved. And that's because humans can consent to what's being done to them and animals cannot. And so the the threshold is even higher, right? Absolutely. Back to your point about not being able to necessarily know if the animals were representing the humans um, sort of more faithfully. I, I completely agree with what you said about the, the thresholds for approvals of study. Uh, and the other thing to say is humans, you know, they can consent, but they can also... Uh, tell you when things are painful and uncomfortable and, and anim- you know, animals can't, it's, it's much harder to accurately determine low levels of pain and things. So, you know, I, I completely agree with what you said about the level of the bath for approval of animal studies. So in our, in, in the mouse model, they produce the urinary signs of black urine because their wood shavings in the bottom of their cages, for example, turn black over time. Um, but what we don't see is is the the black joint, or we didn't see with the black joints. It was basically because people, when when the mice the mice died and they looked at the joints, they weren't black like the human joints. So I was one of the first people to actually look at them under the microscope. And when we looked at the the cells in the cartilage and we stained them with a special stain uh, that makes the the pigment a blue color, we could see it was exactly the same in the human as in the mice and therefore we were able to validate the model and I think you know this is has snowballed in the last 10 years you know we talk about in science going from bench to bedside right and the the understanding of this disease alcaptinuria for non-medical listeners to the podcast if you google black bone disease or black urine disease, it will pop up and you'll see some of the the striking images of joint tissues. Mm-hmm. The understanding of this disease going from this bench to bedside, we've done that in a little over 12 years for this disease. We've gone from knowing almost nothing about it other than it produces black urine and black cartilage and black in the whites of the eyes and the and the ears to actually having a, a therapy to treat these patients. I mean, they were, they were re- incredibly lucky that this disease doesn't shorten their life. They don't die early mm-hmm. from it. The really awful symptom is their quality of life deteriorates very rapidly because their joints, you know, they describe their joints like being wrapped in chain mail because this black pigment gets rid of the smoothness of your cartilage mm-hmm. and turns it into like concrete. And it's like rubbing concrete blocks together. The therapy that works has actually been repurposed from a different disease that it's very effective in treating another disease where people can't metabolize tyrosine properly. Um, and it's been repurposed for, for this alcaptinuria and it's incredibly effective. Um, you know, it's, it's a crazy story. And That's I think awesome. ju- 
just I think the one you know the one thing about this wonder drug as some people describe it and it really is is it's actually from a weed killer you know they say it's from weed killer to wonder drug it was discovered from the active uh, compound from it is a naturally occurring weed killer from a, a plant called the bottle brush plant okay which um looks exactly like the name says what people found was underneath the bottle brush plant, no weeds would grow. Wherever they grew, there was no weeds in the soil or the ground around them. And they found that plants is not my strong. So <laughs> forgive me if, I, if the technicalities aren't quite right. It would release particulate matter onto the ground around it. And what that did was it inhibited tyrosine metabolism of wow. the weeds. It was basically stopping the plants from growing by inhibiting that. And when they found you know, this active compound within it, they began to look at how it how it interfered with or, or modified tyrosine metabolism and, and found that it could potentially treat this other disease first, which is fatal, uh, particularly people don't typically get past their young years in childhood because they end up with cancer in their liver. And by giving them this drug, it, it basically changed their life. They, you know, they relied on a liver transplant very early on. And so we, you know, the drug was applied for approval and repurposed for, for treating our capsulin. It's, in, it's incredibly effective. It's, it's, is, it's kind of wonderful story to to say i played a tiny minute little part in it that's amazing that's a great story um and it's actually an interesting one potentially from an evolutionary perspective too right i mean um you have to think this plant defense mechanism to sort of keep other plants from competing with it and that's pretty fascinating um that you're able to use that or you know harness that to treat a human for a totally unrelated reason but the molecular mechanism behind it is related mind-blowing totally cool it's cool awesome. yeah, yeah. i want to say thank you so much dr taylor i'm sorry professor taylor um, i recognize that that's an important point in the uk professor taylor adam my good friend uh for coming today to talk to us on science night why don't you tell our listeners where they can find you out in cyberspace Sure. Yeah. So if, for those of you that use social media, I uh, do a fair amount on Twitter. So you can find my Twitter handle, which is at Adatomy, A-D-A-T-O-M-Y, which is a spin on my name and anatomy uh, kind of crashed together. It's a portmanteau almost, right? Indeed, indeed it is. Uh, so yeah, I'm fairly active on Twitter, um, and I, you know, you can look me up on my uh, university website at, at Lancaster Medical School. Um, and you know, if, if people are interested, please reach out on Twitter, drop me an email. I'm I'm always keen to to speak to people, to collaborate, and uh, yeah, you, you'll you'll find me doing various other bits of entertaining stuff on Twitter, not just science communication. Um, I live my parenting life on there too, which <laughs> which is so much fun to watch. I should say, me being outsmarted by my child is basically basically what goes down on, on on my parenting aspects but yeah reach out if anybody's interested in the science aspects i can't say much of my parenting skills but you know reach out for for, for all things kind of anatomy and public knowledge outreach I'm, I'm keen to keen to hear from people fantastic thank you so much adam it's a pleasure to talk to you and you jason it's always great to catch up and, and let's hopefully uh, touch base face to face in the not too distant future Thank you so much to Professor Adam Taylor for talking about how he is trying to get the people of Britain to know more about their bodies and themselves. If you want to follow me, well, why don't you go over to Twitter.com and go to at James underscore read three. Steffi, where can everybody find you? You can find me on Twitter at Steffi Deem. And Jason, where can everybody find what you are doing? also on Twitter at OrganJM. If you want to follow the Science Night podcast, we are at Science Night and the number one. 
Go to our website, SciNight.com, where you can find past episodes, you can find show notes, you can find everything that we're doing on all of our social media platforms. And one thing that I've been forgetting to do for the past, I don't know, four months, it would be really appreciated if you can rate and review us on wherever you are listening to this podcast. It really helps us break through the noise in the podcast world. So rate us five stars wherever you can do that and we would be very appreciative of it we will be back in one week with a special episode that is going to be happening in one week's time to make up for that extended hiatus over the holiday break until then have a great night the science night podcast is a proud member of the river power podcast mill To find out more about our shows, go to riverpower.xyz. If you want a Chris Goulet for Select Board sticker, (laughs) put it right here. Yeah, there you go.